Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. In the next two episodes, I'm going to focus on backcountry canoe tripping in the old days. In this episode, I'll focus mostly on the basics, such as equipment and food, and in the second episode, I'll focus more on what it was like from both the landscape and the actual physical experience perspectives. Most of the content comes from three time periods, the mid-1880s, 1903, and the early 1940s. The first time period, the mid-1880s, is Surveyor James Dixon's month-long fishing and canoe tripping holiday through the Canoe Lake area in 1885. The details of this trip were first recorded in his original book, Camping in the Muskoka Region. Published in 1886, it was, according to Gary Long, likely Canada's first book-length wilderness recreation guide. For those unaware, Dixon was an Ontario surveyor who surveyed a number of townships on the western side of what became Algonquin Park in the period between 1878 and 1885. His original narrative was edited and updated by Gary Long in 1997 as a book entitled A 19th Century Algonquin Adventure. Long suspects that because of the nature of Dixon's work, it's unlikely it was a single trip and may have been a composite of multiple trips over several years. Either way, Dixon and his party started canoe tripping in birch bark canoes from Dwight at Lake of Bays. They went up through the Opiongo River to Tea and Canoe Lakes, getting as far north as the southern end of Burnt Root via Burnt Island, the Otter Slides, and Big Trout Lake. They also did several side trips. One had them portaging west from Teepee Lake to Potter Creek, and north through Brule, McIntosh, Timberwolf to Misty, and another side adventure from Smoke Lake to Ragged Lake, and a third to Source, Tanamacoon, and as far east as Cache and Head Lakes, and on to the Madawaska River. The second reference time period is a three-week guided adventure in 1903, where Boston architect... Ernest Machado, who with his brother Jose and brother-in-law Alfred Whitman and three park rangers trekked first from Canoe Lake to Big Trout Lake. From there they passed through Merchant Happy Isle and Opiongo, and from Annie Bay headed south down the Opiongo River to Booth Lake and eventually to Victoria Lake just outside the east boundary of the park. The third is a 16-day fishing trip that was taken in the early 1940s and became a book called The Incomplete Anglers by Tom Robbins, which was published in 1943. John and his friend Tom started at Radiant Lake, and first they trekked down the Petawawa River to the Forks, where the pair then headed down White Partridge Creek. After a few days of fishing bliss, they then backtracked to the Crow River and headed west to Lavier, and then south to Hardy and Dixon Lakes. From there, they went across the Bonfield-Dixon Portage, and on to Opiongo. Though traveling generally across different parts of the park, one thing that was in common with all three was the lack of other adventurers in the park, which just by itself must have been an amazing experience. Other references that might be of interest include my two books, Canoe Tripping Then and Now, which was published in 2012, Treasuring Algonquin, which was published in 2006, Esther Kaiser's Paddling My Own Canoe, which was published in 2003, as well as a few bits from Roy McGregor's Canoe Country, published in 2015, 
and The Canoe in Canadian Cultures by John Jennings, Bruce Hodgins, and Doreen Small, which was published in 1999. So, with preambles and reference housekeeping completed, let's head off on a virtual canoe trip back through time. Pick your season, June, August, or September, sit back, enjoy the ride, and let your imagination run wild. So backcountry or interior canoe tripping is one of those pastimes that you either love or you absolutely hate. As the mother of a Canoe Lake childhood friend once said, canoe trips are something you endure so you can talk about them afterwards. Each trip has its own ups and downs. Influenced not just by the capabilities of each trip member, both physical and otherwise, but also by external events such as the state of the bugs, the ultimate difficulty of the route selected, the suitability of the equipment that is brought, the quality and quantity of the food, and of course, the weather. As I'm sure you can imagine, rain and cold, high winds and thunderstorms are serious detriments to a good trip. But when all of these elements come together, the experience is truly magical. Not only does life get reduced to its basics, but also canoe tripping can push you to a new level of endurance that one never knew one was capable of. Never have I seen such despair as I saw on many a long portage with young campers and even my own children who didn't think they could do it, but then realized that they could. Canoe tripping also enables a level of spiritual awareness and self-confidence building like few other endeavors. Canoe trips enable a chance to get close to nature and to see with new eyes the world around us. And with this new insight often comes the awareness that builds ever so slowly of how little one truly needs to be content, even if just for a while. The joy of a peanut butter and jam sandwich when starving on a hot day or a cup of tea in a rainstorm become memorable experiences. Now in the early days, canoe tripping was generally the sport of men. Not so today, so you'll have to forgive me that most if not all of the references I have speak of men. I will, however, share a little bit later the story of Esther Kaiser, who was Algonquin's first female canoe trip guide. She first came to Northway Lodge, a girls' camp on Cache Lake in 1927, and started taking friends on guided canoe trips in the park in 1934. According to the website artofmanliness.com that is dedicated to reviving the lost art of manliness, canoe tripping is part of the fabric of the North Woods. It was the canoe that carried Native Americans throughout North America. Canoes brought the first Europeans into the interior of the frontier to trade and proselytize. And it was from the inside of a canoe that Lewis and Clark explored and mapped the American Northwest. So it's no wonder that the idea of paddling away from civilization and into the wilderness has always held great romantic appeal. What man has not sat at his desk, surrounded by the walls of his cubicle, and closed his eyes to imagine gliding through the water of a clear river, surrounded on both sides by emerald forests or vibrant fall foliage? But for Canadians, the canoe is a central part of the Canadian psyche, and it's impossible to go on a canoe trip without a canoe. Though I do have to say, before the ban on motorboats on interior lakes, there were a few hardy souls who tried to canoe trip in boats. I know, because I can remember as if it were yesterday, when on one of my first trips as a child, I watched these men trying to haul a rowboat across one of the portages between Canoe Lake and Burnt Island Lake. However, I digress. As noted by John Jennings, the canoe and canoeing is a symbol unique to Canada. It is one of the greatest gifts of the First Peoples to all of those who came after. It is a symbol of exploration and discovery, of individual courage and partnership, of heroic enterprise, 
and of a quiet harmony with nature. It is perhaps the ultimate expression of elegance and function in the world of watercraft. It is also a symbol of our history and can be a symbol of our future, a symbol of confidence, of community, of paddling together towards a renewed Canada. The symbol of the canoe can provide the link between wilderness and the deep yearning of so many in cities for a closer bond with nature. Pierre Trudeau, Canada's 15th Prime Minister, well known for his love of canoeing, shared many decades ago. The utility of the canoe is undisputed. In the hands of a skilled paddler, it can carry amazing amounts of gear, navigate waters from tiny streams to vast oceans, and do it with a panache that is unquestionably manly. With canoeing, you can lunge yourself deep into the wilderness while at the same time carrying a hundred pounds of gear in your canoe. It is camping that is both rustic and luxurious, which makes it, in my humble opinion, the best kind of camping of all. As Roy McGregor said, a canoe requires no fuel beyond human muscle. It does not pollute. It makes no noise. It takes us to and from familiar places we love the best, introduces us to magical places we would not otherwise experience. When properly conducted, its passage through these fragile, special landscapes leaves no mark. There was even a time when a canoe was considered baggage on passenger trains. No extra fee required. Legendary paddler and outdoors filmmaker Bill Mason was known to have said, First, God created a canoe, and then he created a country to go with it. According to Janice Griffith, a past general manager of the Canadian Canoe Museum, the canoe is also a perfect metaphor for the Canadian character. It's not loud, pushy, or brassy. It's quiet, adaptable, and efficient, and it gets the job done. Until the advent of the canvas cedar strip canoe, most canoe trippers used birch bark canoes. Birch bark canoes were cheap, highly maneuverable on the water, easy to repair, light, and easy to carry or lift, which was an important factor when traversing long portages. As Englishman Joseph Adams shared in his record of a canoe trip he took with park ranger Mark Robinson in 1910, referenced in his 1912 epic 10,000 Miles Through Canada, the canoe floats light as a swan and a touch swerves it to one side or another. It is this sensitiveness to the paddle that makes the canoe such a safe craft. As long as it is paddled clear of rocks and shallows, it is as safe as an ocean liner. Reclining with extended legs, the craft holds its occupants in a close embrace. In places, we came to unexpected gravel shallows, over which the bark shot at high speed. The delicate bark, although very thin, is exceedingly tough, and when we came to beach the canoe, scarcely a scratch showed on the bottom. However, birch bark did have its limitations, especially when shooting rapids or pulling over beaver dams. When comparing birch bark to canvas, John Robbins was not impressed with birch bark. As he commented somewhat sardonically, I presume, the hero, of course, has his birch bark. I have several times paddled a birch bark canoe. Once I paddled one along across a fair-sized lake and back again. The back again was because there was no road by which to walk back and carry the thing. A birch bark is fine for the portage, but a bit cranky on a lake, especially if one is alone. But both birch bark and canvas-covered canoes were, though susceptible to punctures and tears. In the old days, in order to be ready for such an event, a gum dish was prepared for each canoe. 
This involved adding grease to a quantity of unmade shoemaker's resin or tamarack gum until the concoction was not brittle. The dish would then be placed on a small fire until the whole thing was thoroughly melted and mixed together. When a leak was discovered along the trail or waterway, a fire would be set and used to both melt the gum in the gum dish and dry out the area of birch bark around the hole or tear, as the gum wouldn't stick if the birch bark was wet. A newly whittled wooden spoon would then be used to spread a small portion of the gum over the tear or puncture. Within 10 or 15 minutes, most tears or holes were fixable, and the party on the water again. Old-time fishing guide Joe Lavalle used another somewhat unorthodox, though similar, method in the 1940s to fix an inch-long tear, though in this case it was a canvas canoe. According to Bernard Wickstead, an English journalist whom Joe was guiding just after World War II, going to a balsam tree, Joe cut away a pimple of gum with his knife and brought it back to the canoe. He mixed it with some butter and stirred the result into a thick mass, which he kept fluid by the flame of a match. When the desired consistency was reached, he smoothed the mixture over the tear and left it to dry, the whole process taking no more than five minutes. On August 10, 1883, the Ontario Canoe Company was incorporated. It offered six sizes of canoe in three types of construction, basswood board, cedar strip, and what was called longitudinal cedar strip. Burning to the ground in 1892, the company was rebuilt as the Peterborough Canoe Company in 1893, offering 120 different canoe models. Meanwhile, in New Brunswick in 1897, Will and Harry Chestnut developed the first canvas-covered canoes in Canada that were much more rugged and economical than wood canoes and provided stiff competition against those built by the various other companies that operated then in the Peterborough, Ontario area. According to Rory McGregor, the 1901 Summer Mail Order Catalog produced by Eaton's, then a leading Canadian department store, offered a lovely 16-foot version for $25. $32 if the owner wanted the special varnish finish. In the early 19th century, 16 foot was generally the size of canoe that was used and paddled by two with equipment stowed in the middle. Canvas canoes, though, were pretty heavy, weighing as much as 70 pounds, and got more so as they aged or got waterlogged due to tears and rips in the canvas. But in the early years, paid guests never worried much about the weight because they were never responsible for carrying the canoes over portages. That was the responsibility of the guide. Before 1920, having a guide was considered absolutely essential to a successful fishing trip. In 1893, James Wilson hired one at a rate of $2 per day. Because, as he wrote, they knew how to make a temporary overnight camp comfortable and seemed to know the best places for good fishing. One of the earliest known trips conducted by park rangers in this fashion was the Hayes Party Trip. Though there is no written narrative of this trip, it's known because of a collection of photos from the trip that were donated to the Park Museum archives. In 1903, Ernest Machado, his brother and brother-in-law, set out with an equal number of park rangers as guides, which I always thought was an unusually high guest-to-guide ratio. But maybe not, as guides from Nominegan were known in the 1920s to have one guide for every two guests. Guides were required to be licensed with a set of rules that the park authorities established that they had to abide by. According to Ron Corbett in his book The Last Guide, guides called their clients sports, a term of either affection or derision, 
the distinction depending on the personality of the individual sport and the size of the tip, which sometimes amounted to a day's wages. In the company of a good guide, the sport had an opportunity to catch fish they could only dream about back home. As George Bartlett wrote in one of his annual reports in the 19s, nearly all of the prizes offered by sporting journals won this year were taken by fish from Algonquin Park. Until the 1930s, guides mostly came from the surrounding area. Many would work in the logging camps or trap all winter and guide for one of the local hotels, such as the Highland Inn on Cache Lake, all summer. For some visitors, it took a while to get used to their wild, bushwhacky appearance. But once you got to know them, all were most interesting conversationalists. They didn't make much money, maybe $5 a day, a few dollars more if they brought their own canoe, but they all sure knew how to look after the guests in the bush and knew where the best fishing holes were. This was critical because in those days it was assumed that fish would be caught nearly every day to supplement the dried food that was carried. It was also assumed that the guides and the guided would be men, though an early Algonquin Park photograph shows women fishing in a stream, perhaps taken because it was seen as such an exotic sight. Who knows? This attitude didn't begin to change until the 1930s when Esther Kaiser came along. Esther first came to Algonquin Park in 1927, as I mentioned previously, to attend Fanny Case's Northway Lodge on Cache Lake. This was on the enthusiastic advice of her older brother Manley Sessions, whom you met in Episode 8, when he bought Menacing Lodge on Burnt Island in 1947. Manley had come to visit Cache Lake in the mid-1920s to see if the fresh air would help with his asthma and serious seasonal allergies, the conventional medical wisdom at the time being that fresh balsam and hemlock in the air was good for the lungs. Case's philosophy of camping and canoeing had then and still has today a formative impact on generations of women. According to Esther Kaiser, Fanny Case believed that women could do most things that men could do, She endeavored to teach women survival skills in an environment that had been the domain of the opposite sex. Her connection to Mother Nature, displayed in her daily actions and expressions, provided much of the spiritual framework for the camp. In September of 1934, at the age of 19, Esther took two Girl Guide associates on an extended trip from Brulee Lake to Big Trout via McIntosh and Misty. After spending a week at the ranger shelter hut on Big Trout, They returned via Grassy Bay. From there, relying on word of mouth, she planned and conducted four trips in 1935. This was the beginning of many years of helping women build independence and skills in the bush, as in those days it was highly unusual for young women to go on canoe trips on their own. As she wrote in her book, Paddling My Own Canoe, The opportunities for outdoor adventure for women were extremely limited at that time, so my trips helped fill that gap. I relied on word-of-mouth advertising. Friends asked me to plan trips for them in the park. I simply got canoes and food together for them, met them at Canoe Lake, and went off with them. To answer the increasing number of questions asked by potential clients, I prepared a marketing notebook called A Wilderness Canoe Trip, featuring black-and-white photographs taken on these early trips with brief explanations about the daily routine. I supplied long, thin Ojibwe-style paddles, Equipment and food was packed in woods canoe packs. Customers brought their own bedrolls, which usually consisted of a Hudson Bay blanket and several blanket pins. I encouraged people to sleep out under the stars and almost always did so myself. 
If the bugs were biting, we used a shirt or towel over our faces and wrapped ourselves tightly in our Hudson Bay blankets. If bad weather moved in, we'd sleep under one of the canoes or under a tarp. Organizing the food for a canoe trip in the late 19th century and on up until World War II was a pretty simple exercise. In the late 1880s, and as well as the, into the 1940s, the grub list, as it was often called, was pretty sparse. Often it consisted only of biscuits or hardtack, pork carried in a special made wooden barrel, a holdover, I presume, from the sailing days, beans, dried apples, a chest of tea, and perhaps a bottle of pickles or a box of sardines for the first meal or two. To make something bread-like, a little baking soda or yeast cake would be included, and a little can of dry mustard. For health, a bottle of castor oil and a few cakes of Castile soap. As Dixon shared in 1886, Our larder includes several sides of long, clear bacon sewn up in coarse brown canvas bags, about a hundred pounds in each sack, several bags of the best flour, a barrel of biscuits, sufficient to last till we can be long enough in one camp to enable the cook to bake loaf bread, a box of mixed green and black tea, a sack of dried apples, a few bushels of white beans, the smaller the bean, the better the quality, a quantity of split peas for soup, a box or two of raisins, a quantity of rice and sugar, a few bars of the best soap, a few small cans each of mustard and pepper, a bag of table salt, a box of matches, a pound or two of yeast cakes and baking soda. Each man carries his own tobacco. Last is a half-gallon tin flask of brandy into which, on the advice of the family physician, we have put sufficient quantities of quinine. For those unaware, quinine was used as an antidote and prevention measure to fight off ague, a malaria-like fever common in Ontario in those days. For the Machado trip in 1903, there were a few new additions to this basic diet, such as onions, oatmeal, cornmeal, vegetables, julienne soups, codfish, and potatoes. But it wasn't until the late 1940s that there was much variation in this simple fare. Tripping after World War II brought the addition of chipped beef, evaporated milk, hard cheese, oranges, butter, coffee, prunes, strawberry jam, pancake flour, chocolate bars, and even what they called manufactured bread. The grub list in the incomplete anglers in the early 1940s cost $11.63 for 16 days for two. It included seven pounds of bacon, none too much, they said, even with good fishing, half a pound of chipped beef, which was thinly sliced beef that had been salted and dried and was packaged in jars, six small cans of evaporated milk, four pounds of sugar, 12 large Spanish onions, a pound of cheese, six oranges, a pound of salt, six pounds of rolled oats, four pounds of butter, one pound of tea, a can of coffee beans, three pounds of prunes, two pounds of white beans, one pound of strawberry jam, four packages of pancake mix, nine loaves of bread, and seven small chocolate bars. According to Bernard Wickstead in his narrative Joe Lavalli and the Pale Face, their grub steak in 1945, owing to wartime rationing, had no bacon, nor was there any corned beef or cooking fat, which must have been a challenge. As he shared in his book, we were allowed one pound of butter, one pound of sugar, and a tin of jam. There was plenty of canned beef stew, but Joe said it was too heavy to carry on portages and would let me buy only six tins. For the rest, we took five loaves of bread, flour, tea, matches, salt, and a huge cabbage. 
I couldn't think of why we needed a cabbage until the next day, when I saw Joe pulling off the leaves and wrapping them round the butter. The bushman's refrigerator, he said. It kept the butter solid on the hottest of days. The grub didn't look like much when it was all spread out, but Joe said it would do, as we would be living mainly on the fish we caught. Organizing the rest of the camp kitchen was another of the big canoe-tripping challenges, and in this department much has changed since 1885. Then one of the most important items was the cast-iron bake kettle, which was usually wrapped in the tent and placed in one of the blanket packs. Number three, duck or heavy-twilled gray bags were used to store cutlery and other cookery-related supplies, and where appropriate, certain other provisions like oatmeal or flour. For those unaware, duck was a kind of heavy, plain, tightly woven cotton. And number three was a scale from one to twelve, with one being the heaviest and twelve being the lightest. Like today, eating dishes in the various pots, known as billies by us old-timers, were all nested inside one another, from smallest to largest. As Dixon explained, the tea pail, which is usually the smallest, is selected. First, tin plates are laid in the bottom. Next, the tea dishes are put in, and the spoons, knives, and forks follow, all having been carefully counted to see that none are lost. The lid is put on, the pail set in the next largest, the handle turned down, and the lid of this one also put in its place and the same process is gone through till the largest alone is visible. The lid of this ladder is now securely tied on. To enable carrying on portages, a tump line is wound around the whole collection of pots and tied with a projecting loop to receive the forehead of the carrier. For those interested, in my accompanying video on YouTube, you can see an example of this collection of pots awaiting portages. It's quite the pile. As to clothing, in the 1880s, according to James Dixon, each man has, by way of wearing apparel, a pair of strong kip or cowhide boots with patch bottoms and Hungarian tacks in the soles, a pair of light gaiters, or moccasins or leather slippers to put on when round camp, three or four pairs of light woolen socks, a couple of pairs of strong Guernsey drawers, and as many shirts of the same material, two strong cotton shirts, one pair of brown duck, and another pair of woolen pants, one coat and one vest, a few colored handkerchiefs, a hat and a towel. What is not required for immediate use, we stow away in a common cotton grain bag known as a dunnage bag, the whole weighing only a few pounds. By 1903, not much had changed, with heavy wool socks, wool pants tucked into mid-calf leather lace-up boots, wool caps, dark-colored shirts, wool jackets, and padded vests still the norm. For sleeping outdoors in the late 19th century and even up until the 1960s, most canoe trippers carried very heavy, especially when wet, number three duck or heavy twilled gray cotton canvas tents. They were generally seven feet by seven feet in diameter with a two foot wall. They also always carried canvas shelter tarps that covered the cooking area. Though the military use of sleeping bags had been around since the late 1800s, it wasn't until post-World War II that they became more common on canoe trips and other outdoor recreational activities. Up until then, each person had one pair of large gray blankets, held together sometimes with a large blanket pin. Gray blankets were the norm, though occasionally a Hudson Bay blanket with signature black points would find its way to the wilderness. As Robbins explained, 
Know, all men, that my red blanket has been woven for me these three hundred years and more by the company of gentlemen adventurers trading into Hudson's Bay. When I roll myself into it, I am a bearded factor, pulling that blanket out of a bale at York Factory and selling it dourly to my feathered, silent, stately self for too many beaver skins trapped along the bitter reaches of the North Saskatchewan River. The next big challenge was to figure out how to carry all this stuff on a portage. It's interesting to note that in 1880, canoe packs as we know them today had not been invented. Dixon describes in detail how a tump line and blankets were folded and tied in such a way as to make a pack for other blankets, clothing and dunnage bags, and other small articles. It's hard to imagine what happened when it rained. In 1903, pictures suggest that the pack was just a collection of dunnage bags that were somehow roped together with a tump line across the forehead. One member of the team seemed to have had all of the leftovers, including fishing rods, tackle boxes, worms, the camp kitchen barrel, and other miscellaneous stuff. In 1948, Robbins indicated that each man had responsibility for his own haversack. Tom's we called the pet, which was a long brown bag and contained Tom's clothing, his small pack, and a large part of the food. Next was a tent bundle, very compactly rolled, that included the blankets with its sheltering envelope. Another was a rucksack containing John's clothing. A third held some of the food, extra cans of powdered milk, duplicates of anything that comes in more than one container, the bacon, one vast slab wrapped in brown paper and chipped beef. A coarse grain sack contained nine loaves of bread. A sack still coarser in texture than the bread bag contained the rough stuff, which included a frying pan and three billies. Lastly was a gawky bundle containing fishing rods, landing nets, along with the tackle box and a box of worms. If it was a short carry, Tom would take the worms, the two utensil sacks, the bundle with the fishing rods, sometimes the bread bag. I would take the canoe. On the second trip, Tom would take the pet, the tent bundle, my big pack, and the tackle box. Now, as some of you may have noticed, there wasn't an expectation that portages would be only walked once. That didn't become an expectation of dedicated canoe tripping until the 1960s, and was led mostly by the Algonquin Park Children's Camp canoe trippers. Robbins, in the Incomplete Anglers, articulated the issue fabulously. The hero is content with so little that he can do this easily. The sportsman, on the other hand, has a guide whose carrying capacity is always a matter of conjecture, for its limit has never been reached. There is also a breathless young thing who rushes through the woods like wildfire in shorts, who carries provisions barely sufficient to get him through to the next food depot, and whose boast is in having done in one day what we have dawdled over for a week. But as for us, we have with us the canoe, enough blanketing and tenting to keep us reasonably warm and dry, and all the food required for two and a half weeks, as shown on the grub list. Such odds and ends as may or may not appear in the Chronicle. Moreover, we simply are not heroic. Sorry, but we are not. We must make two trips to get our stuff across a portage. Alas, no matter how experienced one is, no matter how short or long it is, even then, the first portage is and was a humbling experience. As Robbins shared, 
On that first portage, I remember the surprising lightness of the canoe as I sauntered off with it on my shoulders. I had disdained assistance in lifting it to my shoulders, its weight wrestling easily on my canoe pad. Tom asked me how it felt. I assured him with conviction that it had never seemed so light that I had at last, apparently quite by accident, hit upon the correct way of carrying a canoe. The first fainting of doubting troubled me immediately thereafter, followed by a growing belief that I had lashed the paddles too closely together, or else not loosely enough. A pain in one shoulder admonished me that the canoe was off balance, which a suspicion rose within me that I too must be off balance, to inflict such misery upon myself. I remember the feeling of shamed relief when I decided to stop and readjust the paddles. I tilted the front end of the canoe down to steady it, and I stumbled just a little, but enough to send its nose plowing into the dirt ahead. Robbins also shared that he was very much aware that his method of picking up a canoe was highly improper and efficient. His approach was to grab the two sides of the gunwale near the stern and turn the canoe over whilst at the same time raising the stern up over his head. Making sure that the bow remained balanced on the ground, he then moved his way backwards to the center of the canoe. Once there, he inserted his head between the two lashed paddles and then lifted the canoe off the ground. Those of us who have tripped a lot know that this approach, though doable, takes a fair amount of energy and brute strength, whereas the flipped canoe approach is both less strenuous and much faster. For those unaware, properly flipping a canoe into place involves standing next to the middle thwart and resting the canoe first on one's thighs with one hand on each gunnel. One then pushes the bow of the canoe down whilst at the same time moving to a standing position and executing a small twisting motion with one's wrists. This pulls the far side of the canoe upward and in one smooth motion the weight of the canoe itself is used as a bit of a lever and the canoe magically swings or flips into position. Robbins also shared amusingly the challenges of the weight on one's shoulders. I know that the hero or the guide may not a sweater around his neck and dispense with any other padding amenities. I do not. Years ago, I used to roll my blankets bandolier fashion and rest the canoe on them. There were several disadvantages in this. If the blanket shifted as it tended to do, it allowed the paddles to do their worst, or it encircled my neck and nearly strangled me. Even if it remained in position, snuggling closely about my neck, it developed within the airless regions of that inverted canoe a steaming heat that I found very trying. Another mechanism was to tie a tump line to the center thwart to relieve the weight of the canoe from the shoulders. Others would occasionally let the bottom of the canoe rest on their head, the challenge with that strategy being that the canoe carrier couldn't see anything past a few steps beyond their feet. One aid for weary canoe carriers, the canoe rest, was invented, I'm told, by longtime park ranger Jack Gervais. A few can still be found on really long portages. A canoe rest is a thick branch or pole that was nailed horizontally between two trees about seven feet above the ground. They enabled the carrier to rest the forward end of the canoe on the rest and take a break free of the weight of the canoe. Another option often used was to find a maple tree with the right branching so that using the same technique, the forward end of the canoe 
could be balanced in the notch of the tree on a temporary basis. Another trick instead of portaging, say over beaver dams or short rapids, was the lift. This was done when it wasn't worth the bother to take everything out of the canoe and portage. Two people, one on either side of the canoe, would haul it up and over the obstruction, taking care not to put too much weight on the middle of the canoe, which would result, unfortunately, in a broken keel or cracked rib. Robin again amusingly describes, A lift has no dignity, no character. It's nondescript. By definition, which is the recognized method of concealing inner truth by means of superficial accuracy, a lift is a carry too short to justify all the preparations for a portage proper. The canoe is not carried on the shoulders of one, but right side up in the hands of two, with the lighter parcels left in. Hence the name. A lift may be 50 yards or more, or less in length. It's a minor misery. In the first place, a canoe carried over uneven ground or rock by two men at different levels and with different methods of handling their respective ends of the craft and bumping against its carriers is not only an exceedingly awkward object, but it takes on also an apparent increase in weight that gives each of its bearers an unreasoning but immediate and eradicable sense of being exploited. Bags and pack are never properly arranged, but are drafted across in a haphazard fashion, which doubles the labor and trebles the irritation. All in all, a lift is a messy affair. It takes time and returns very little distance for this time, and for often enough, the water at the other end is easily visible, just a few ridiculous yards ahead. I hope you've enjoyed this first of two episodes on backcountry canoe tripping in Algonquin during its earliest years. In our next episode, we'll focus on the landscape, some interesting camp setup tricks, and of course, food and its preparation. In the meantime, if you're interested in seeing some pictures of the 1903 Machado trip, check out my YouTube channel, Algonquin Defining Moments, and there's also a slideshow on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com.